Hi, Interlibrary Loan listeners. This is Sky. Um, we're back. We're back after our uh, couple-week unexpected hiatus. Uh, I need to take full credit for this. Uh, Lauren and Katie have been very good at doing their homework and being responsible and uh, getting things done for the show on time. Uh, and I have been messing up and getting things wrong with editing. So uh, here it is, finally, the third and final section of uh, Voltaire's Candide. Uh, next week, uh, that is on uh, Thursday, May 18th, um, we'll have an episode out where we discuss the first three episodes of the uh, Hulu miniseries A Handmaid's Tale. And then uh, starting May 25th, we'll be discussing W. Somerset Mom's The Razor's Edge. Uh, and I can tell you guys right now that first week, the episode that drops May 25th, will be uh, reading part one of The Razor's Edge. It's about 50 pages long. So if you want to, get yourself a copy of uh, W. Somerset Mom's The Razor's Edge and get started. In a couple weeks, you'll hear that. Uh, next week, The Handmaid's Tale on TV. And today, uh, we present the third and final installment of Voltaire's Candide. Interlibrary Loan Candide, or Optimism, by Voltaire Hello everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Interlibrary Loan, the show where a group of friends get together, read a book worth discussing, and then discuss it a little bit by a little bit. And so today, we are here for our third installment of Voltaire's classic satire, Candide or Optimism, and maybe we will answer the question that we have been asking, is it Candide or is it Optimism? As always, I'm Katie. I'm Sky, And I'm Lauren. He still never tells us whether it's Candide or Optimism. I don't know. I kind of feel like since he, he only mentions Optimism the one time in the book, it's safe to assume that it's Candide. I mean, there's, I mean, and we'll talk about it when we get to the end of the book, but, um, you know, Pangloss offers us this uh, philosophy of optimism. And maybe That's true. He never lets go of it. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, but maybe we find another one. So here we go with the last section, chapters 21 through 30. Um, when last we left, uh, our friend Candide. And Martin. And Martin, yeah, he had just met Martin, uh, the Manichaean. Yeah, Martin is kind of like the anti-Pangloss. Like, mm-hmm. he's, he's a cynic. And so every throughout the book from beginning to end, uh, Martin says... You mean from uh, Martin's, like... Well, from Martin's introduction until the end of the book. Martin is saying, like, eh, people are miserable, and they're pretty much always the same amount of miserable no matter what, and eh. Yeah, and there's, I mean, he sums it up pretty well with, so, you know, Candide asks him, um, they're, they're talking, it's like at the, at the end of the, of the last chapter of our previous section, um, and yet there is some good in the world, Candide would reply. That may be so, Martin would say, but I have not experienced it. Um, and, you know, Candide has experienced both, as we've said, kind of vacillating back and forth between thinking, well, maybe maybe Pangloss is right, and, oh no, Pangloss is way wrong. Um, yeah, I think that's accurate to describe um, Martin as an anti-Pangloss because Martin really takes his experiences seriously and is kind of shaped by them, whereas Pangloss, by the end, it's like, he has no reason to really believe what the, his philosophy, but it's his philosophy and he's sticking to it. And it doesn't matter if his life has sucked, it's still the best of all possible worlds. And at the end of the book, it, it you know... Basically, it's described that Martin and Pangloss spend years arguing with each other about philosophy and never come to any kind of conclusion or uh, or change their views. Yeah, and in, indeed, you know, Pangloss even says himself, like, um, "I'm no, I'm still going to stick to my theory because that's what it is, and I'm a philosopher. Yeah, it, it just wouldn't do to contradict Leibniz. And so this is, yeah, it would not do. And this is... Um, Voltaire poking fun at 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 
philosophers who will cling so desperately to their ideas even while and in in one of the appendices if 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 you read the appendices which which you should um he voltaire criticizes um uh oh yeah he's talking about leibniz and he says uh leibniz realized that these questions were unanswerable so he wrote thick books in which he did not agree with himself (laughs) and so you know pangloss goes through life um with having experiences which do not agree with his idea, although he will um, find a way to make them do so uh, by using a ridiculous like cause and effect uh, uh, explanations that really don't amount to anything. Sure, and I think um, in today's terms, we might describe what Pangloss is doing as a type of kind of like of attachment to philosophy as a part of his identity that he's wrapped up who he is in this in this philosophy and so if he were to contradict that then his entire life would seem meaningless right all his life's work would have amounted to nothing But so we have our heroes, uh, Candide and Martin, and they are headed to France. This part gave me great pleasure in reading, because after Voltaire has, you know, mocked every other European society, he finally gets to France, and, and it's obvious that this is the society and culture that he has, you know, the most familiarity with, and thus kind of has the like most license to critique and it was wonderful (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah. i mean candide starts out by asking martin hey you ever been to france and martin's like oh yeah you know uh half the population are lunatics and in the others they're too cunning and in some parts they're good-natured and simple-minded but in others they cultivate their wits but wherever you go the principal occupation is making love the second is spreading scandal, and the third is talking nonsense. Yeah. Um, spoiler alert, that's, like, my favorite <laughs> section of the week. Oh, did I, did I just blow up your quote of the week? I'm sorry. No, no, I mean, it was going to happen anyway, because that's too, that's too good. It's yeah, too good. I underlined it, too. It was, it was going to be my quote, so I guess we all, we all agree this is pretty great. Yep. Um, actually, I was saving my quote for when he talks about the English, but we'll get to that later. Yeah. All right. Um, but yeah, no, Voltaire pulls no punches. Um, and uh, and Martin makes some really observa- some really interesting observations in this section, just kind of about the about human nature in general. And um, Candide is asking what. Uh, what is the point of, of creation? Like, to what end was the world created? And, and Martin says madness, basically, to, to, to make us mad. And um, Candide then asks about, you know, have men always been this terrible? And Martin basically replies, yeah, they've always been, you know, liars, cheats, traitors, ingrates, brigands. Um, and... He's not very uh, he's not very charitable to man's good nature, and Candide's a little bit taken aback. But um, but Martin's pretty insistent that you know that uh, that and finishes by saying, "Don't you think that hawks have always eaten pigeons when they come across them?" Yeah, so it's the nature of man to be bad and flawed mm-hmm. and nasty. And I think it's interesting that he introduces this at the same time that he's talking about the French, because Voltaire, while a Frenchman, has suffered a lot of um, poor treatment at the hands of French society. Uh, And so Candide comes to French society and is brought to a gambling hall that is run by some sort of fancy courtesan. Uh, This is a great scene because it contains Voltaire's, like, Mary Sue self-insert, in which he's, like, a wise critic of the arts talking about... uh, French plays. 
Yeah. Uh, Candide loses a bunch of money gambling, and then uh, as part of the dinner conversation, this sort of wise critic, who is unnamed but is basically Voltaire, uh, goes on at length about what makes a good uh, what makes a good play as opposed to a bad play, um, what makes a a good uh, tragedy. And apparently Voltaire was very bitter, the notes say, about the reception of his plays, uh, which were not always great. Um, and what do you know, Voltaire? Not known today for his playwriting, but mostly for his other writings. Indeed. Uh, but I love the way that this uh, dinner conversation section starts, though. It's, it's hilarious. So it says... The supper was like most suppers in Paris. Silence at first, then a confused babble in which no one can make themselves heard, followed by an ex- exchange of largely insipid witticisms, false news, pointless argument, a little politics, and a quantity of slander. There was even some talk of the latest books. That just made me laugh. Yep. <laughs> yeah, Voltaire, like um, most writers during this period and into the like into the, ni- the 19th century and I, f- I would suppose even today are very uh like very critical of critics and see critics as like having a kind of hack occupation and think you know journalists journalists are basically two-bit anti-intellectual writers who couldn't make it as writers themselves and so they just spend most of their time you know knocking down and picking apart the works of greater men yeah. Um, like you couldn't you couldn't create on on your own. So Right. So you just spend most of your time like poking holes in everyone else's art. Which yeah. I think like that's mostly not the case now. Like I think I think that our arts and culture environment has changed a lot in the 20th century to make this seem like antiquated this view uh, of like tension between writers and critics, mm-hmm. which like I mean it still exists, but I think the general consensus is that, like, artists and critics are, like, on the same side. I don't know. Um, yeah, I, I I think that's... I think there's less hostility now, or at least less open hostility, or or perhaps we're just not in that world and we don't see it. But this is definitely something that, that recurs in French literature, and you see it in, like, Balzac's Lost Illusions, where you have, like, this whole underground circle of, like, journalists that are kind of synonymous with criminals and prostitutes and so you have like you know like journalism and and criticism is not very highly regarded as an art form yeah i think throughout like 18th and 19th century literature it's a pretty common theme um and of course like writers like to write about writers and about like um and about about themselves and about themselves and uh voltaire is taking great pleasure in this in this mm-hmm. ch- chapter in Paris, the supper happens, and then the Marquise like takes Candide aside afterwards and basically asks him about his intentions with uh, with Cunegonde if they're still because he Candide of course had relayed his story as he has multiple times and and basically propositions him. Right, as a, a courtesan, she basically like ensnares Candide into into uh, into sleeping with her with uh, and and giving her his uh, his the large diamonds he's wearing on his fingers right and she and she claims that you know had he been Parisian she would have made him wait a fortnight but but <laughs> yeah. since he's a he's a, a foreigner and you know uh, she she has to do him the honors and uh, and brings him into her her bedroom. Yeah. Um, so Candide feels kind of bad about this after, and he's like, "Oh, I feel really bad about this." And Martin's like, "Whatever, man. Like, I don't care." And Candide resolves that he will apologize to Cunegonde for being unfaithful when he finally reunites with her. Um, Which, I, as as far as the text goes, he does not do. As far you know, like that's never discussed. No, but you yeah. could, you say that well. His guilt leads him to be trapped yet again uh, by the abbe in the next in the next scene. Who, who listening to his detailed story about his you know travels and travails with Cunegonde and and uh, uh, and the rest um, devises a plan to trap um, Candide and Martin by planting a. 
a letter claiming that Cunegonde is ill and in distress and that he must, you know, come to see her immediately. All right, so by now we know how this is going to go. He shows up to the purported Cunegonde's uh, residence. And, uh, and it's an imposter. <laughs> it's Right, who, and the lights are all dim, and the maid is like, oh, you must not turn on the lights or else she will die, or, <laughs> and, and she cannot speak. And, uh, and Conveniently. So, right, so Candide is robbed of a good deal of money again uh, in this fashion. Uh, and then he's almost thrown in prison, uh, except he just bribes. By now he's smart enough. Yeah, you know, let's give Candide some credit. He is learning the ways of the world, uh, especially with uh, the advice of Martin. And so he bribes the guy. The guy's like, oh, well, it doesn't matter what crime you committed. Now I'm on your side, dude. Yeah. And uh, he brings him to Normandy where he sets sail for Portsmouth, uh, which is not anywhere on the way to Venice, but Candide's just happy to be leaving France. Right. He. Well, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, just I was just gonna comment like if if you look at the map uh, for this book, it's hilarious. Yeah, they like they're going totally out of their way. When he said he was going to take him as far as Normandy, I was like, dude, that's the wrong direction. Yep. So they go they go to Portsmouth, and uh, as they go into the harbor, he sees a firing squad execute a fat guy, and he's like, what what is that all about? And they explain like, oh, that guy was an admiral. And uh, he did not sufficiently engage with his French enemy, and so they executed him. And Candide's like, wait, that's not right. This is my quote of the week where they said, ah, well, you know, in, uh, in this country we find it a good practice to kill an admiral every once and again as it uh, encourages the others. Yeah, that's pretty great. <laughs> uh, and this is, you know, this is like a sort of... It's a frequently quoted... Yeah, it's a frequently quoted part of Candide um, and is sort of adapted for use elsewhere. But uh, Voltaire, who was exiled to London for a good deal of time, uh, really uh, really liked the English um, and, you know, wrote, uh, of, wrote well of his time there. Um, but he... This guy who is... This admiral who was executed who is a real-life guy, was a friend of Voltaire's. And so I guess he's he's giving this story to uh, show that there are, you know, bad things happening in England, too. So Candide doesn't even get off the boat. He's like, eh, this country doesn't seem that great. Just take me right to, uh, to Venice. Right. And so uh, he's approaching Venice, where, of course, he believes that he will be reunited with Cunegonde and all will be well. And... Um, you know, maybe again, uh, he can accept Pangloss's theory. All goes as well as it possibly can. Yep. We will see. He he searches for Cacambo in all of the taverns, and then all of the coffee houses, and then all of the brothels. But Cacambo is nowhere to be found. In that order. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and. And he, he's at a loss as to why his his manservant, who he'd given, you know, all this money and told to go find his lost love and bring her to Venice, why he wouldn't be there yet. And Martin's not having any, any of it. <laughs> uh, Martin's like, yeah, uh, he probably kept Kunigan for himself or just took the money and is hanging out somewhere. Uh, you shouldn't worry about him. Just get on with your life, dude. Uh, and yeah. so he does in a black melancholy, a mac bleh, bleh, into a black melancholy. And he did not take part in the fashionable operas or the carnival amusements. Yeah, so that's another thing is he's here in Venice during carnival. Um, and Venice is a sort of, I guess at this time, like a cosmopolitan city, a, a city of pleasure where people who have money uh, go to have fun. Uh, but Candide's not having fun. He's just Moping. distressed. Yes. Right. So during his moping, he runs across um, this this young lady uh, who's uh, on the arm of a, a a Theatine monk, and this young lady turns out to be someone that he knows. Yes, uh, we run into Paquette, which previous to this we'd only heard about, or we'd only heard her described uh, f from Candide, who 
saw her and um and master pangloss um in their science lesson yeah Uh, lesson lesson on metaphysics right (laughs) (laughs) um and uh and then later described by pangloss himself who's um who's explaining the source of his demise um but here she is again in venice um practicing her trade <laughs> with the and it's interesting the notes indicate that the theatine order of um of monks were actually sort of noted for their like sincerity and piety and stuff but one of their members happened yeah and one of their but one of their members happened to be a personal enemy of Voltaire's so he makes this particular theatine monk uh brother Giroflio um into a like a bad monk basically yeah um but so Candide and Martin make this another opportunity to like argue their their points um you know candide's like oh well these people are happy and martin says no no i no no i bet you that these are these are you know among the unhappiest people in the world um so they they decide to to invite them um to dinner and uh then we get the uh the story of paquette and um basically she has another one of these like ridiculous stories like she uh she gets she's made the mistress of this of this doctor and she gets like thrown in prison uh, and a charge like charged with murder. She's released from uh, punishment by the judge only on the condition that be- she becomes the judge's mistress. Right, and by the end of her tale, she um, she has a pretty damning critique of of prostitution, uh, and says, "Oh, Monsieur, if you could imagine what it is like to have to caress with the same enthusiasm an elderly merchant, a lawyer, a monk, a gondolier, and an abbe, to be exposed to every insult and affront, to be reduced often to borrowing a petticoat so as to go and have it lifted by some disgusting man or other, to be robbed by one of what you have earned with another, to have it extorted from you by others of the law, to have nothing to look forward to but a hideous old age and the poorhouse and the refuse heap, then you would agree that I am one of the unhappy creatures alive and then Candice says like well but wait uh you were like singing out there and she's like uh yeah that's one of the other shitty things i have to do i have to pretend that i'm like singing and happy like for my you know johns um so yeah i mean it's really uh a like sort of full-throated uh uh condemnation of uh prostitution on the part of Voltaire. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the reference to the refuse heap was interesting um, because Voltaire cites another, I believe elsewhere in this section, he talks about um, another woman who was denied Christian burial. An actress. Right, yeah, so an actresses actress. and prostitutes were excommunicated in France and were not allowed to be given Christian burials. Uh, and this is something that Voltaire was uh, like advocating against throughout his career yeah so they're just like piled onto the garbage heap um at their death uh which at at some point i think when he's talking about the actress he notes that it you know or maybe it's in yeah yeah, in the when he's talking about the actress he notes that it's you know that's not much worse than being in a in a in a um in a common grave to rot with a bunch of other corpses but still at least you're underground in that case uh and then as for his part brother giroflio is basically like yeah i didn't want to become a monk my parents made me become a monk because like they wanted more of their money to go to my older brother whom i don't like and being a monk is the worst a hundred times to set fire i've been tempted a hundred times to set fire into the monastery and go and turn turk which is to say i guess convert to islam yes um and so, uh, and then he says, like, not only uh, do I dislike being a monk, but all of my fellow brothers in the monastery feel the same. 
and in this way, Martin wins the bet. Martin turned to Candide with his customary coolness. Well, he said, have I not won the whole wager? Candide gave 2,000 piastres to the paquette and 1,000 to Brother Giroflio. My reply to you, he said, is that they will be happy enough with this. And then Martin says, I do not believe it. Uh, not for one moment. You may even make them unhappier still in the end with all your piastres. Uh, and we will see whether they are made unhappier as a result. But never mind that, Candide just takes this as more hope that he may once again be reunited with his dear Cunegonde because he has, uh, he has come, he has met up with the red sheep and now with Paquette. So it could stand to reason that he will still, he is still yet to uh, encounter Cunegonde. This next chapter, chapter 25, is one of my favorites in this book. Um, basically, the whole chapter is their visit to Signor Pococarante, and he's just like some rich Venetian dude who they, who they have heard as a real happy dude who has everything he wants and has never had misery. And so... And- and and yeah, so if if you look at the the names too, because as we've said, like Voltaire likes to have fun with names. Um, so yeah, he has everything he wants. Uh, poco curante comes from the Italian poco little and curante caring, or perhaps <laughs> curante. I don't know. I don't speak Italian. Sorry. Uh, so hence, one who cares about little. Um, and uh, and this nobleman certainly fits the description as he dismisses every great work of literature, art, philosophy, uh, music that Candide can mention. You know, every time he brings up all of the, one of the great works that that uh, are sh- on his shelves, he has some retort as to why it's not really worth the paper that it's printed on. Yeah, he's, I mean, so Poco Carante is this guy who has, you know, had everything he wanted all of his life and has never had misery, but he's also bored by all of the great things that he has. So, you know, uh, anywhere from his servant girls to the music he, he has played for him to his garden uh, and especially all of the books in his library, he, you know, explains that as a as like a, a wealthy gentleman, he's got to have these things, but he doesn't actually like them that much. He complains about Italian opera and mm-hmm. um, the uh, clumsy pretext uh, for two or three ludicrous arias designed to show off some actress's vocal cords, um, and kind of has a general critique of the shallowness of all of these art forms and that it's just a bunch of learned people talking at each other without much actual critical thought and if they are not shallow then they are boring which he says he talks about milton and he basically is like yeah that dude wrote a 10 volume thing about like the first chapter of genesis who would want to read that yeah and there there's this great uh moment in the middle of all this um uh so he says uh, fools admire everything in an esteemed author. I read for myself alone. I only like what I have a use for. Candide, who had been brought up never to judge anything for himself, was much astonished by everything he heard. <laughs> Martin found Pococurante's way of thinking perfectly reasonable. Katie, I wonder if you... So when I was reading this, um, I kind of had the thought that that the, this... Maybe it's the pacing and all the people that you're encountering. and uh, But at this point, I... I thought that this really reminded me of um, of Santa Exuberi's *The Little Prince*, in the way that you ke- that Candide keeps basically encountering a bunch of grown-ups who are screwing up the world. Um, and so I wonder if you could consider like *The Little Prince* like a children's version of Candide, like a tame children's version of Candide. There's certainly a case to be made for for that idea of like this kind of young and like. Ho- hopeful open-minded like just nice pleasant character um like encountering the world and 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 seeing it like you said being messed up yeah um, by all by all the grown-ups yeah 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 i could see that yeah um 
Lil Candide. <laughs> it's interesting, actually, that um, Poco Carante actually does, like, voice admiration for certain authors, like Tasso and Ariosto, who are, like, Italian, um, like, modern Italian writers. But I guess, like, those writers are not, like, the ancients or anything. Like, they're, like, I guess, basically, like, this guy's tastes are not, like refined in the traditional sense but all of these traditional writers all of these like ancient writers uh the sort of canon he sort of rejects as boring or dumb yeah even cicero who the notes mentioned that like uh you know voltaire is israel into he's like well when i saw that he doubted everything i concluded that i must know as much as he and that i needed no one's help in order to be ignorant which is a pretty funny quip uh could be ignorant on my own yeah i don't need help (laughs) so so this uh chapter is it's like this really funny episodic thing that is um uh like really self-contained there's not really uh any connection with this chapter to the other uh parts of the book but it's like I guess it's, like, it's an example that Voltaire has to give where it's like, okay, you find me, like, the happiest, luckiest person on earth who never has had any hardship, and they're probably still not, like, very happy with their lives. So, uh, then Kakambo returns. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, so this, this, this meal that they have with these six strangers who turn out to be, uh, these kings who have like all been um uh deposed basically they go through one by one where they yeah. were a king of and how they were de- deposed uh, yeah and finally candide says to martin like hey martin isn't it crazy that we just met these six deposed kings and martin says eh Nah, that's not extraordinary. That's no more extraordinary than any of the other stuff we've done. Which is, I, I love this, because it's like, he's treating us as if it's not extraordinary, because it's just as unextraordinary as the other stuff they've done. All that stuff was crazy, too! Right, and, and I think that's also, like, like Voltaire just kind of laughing at his own um, absurd story, too. Yeah, yeah, right. It's like, oh, you know, this meeting six kings isn't any weirder than any of the other stuff that happens in this book. Right, and he's kind of pointing towards, like, this idea of um, the relati- relativity of extremes that, you know, like, it's not, like, can- Candide's life is not, like, or ca- Candide's life events don't seem that crazy if the rest of his life has been this turbulent, so. Mm-hmm. Uh, the notes also point out that while all six of these uh, historical kings could not have met at the same time, five of the six could have without anachronism. I don't know if that's, like, that important. Other than Martin does say, like, yo, kings get deposed all the time. That's not really a big deal. And Mm. I guess this is, like, Voltaire sort of showing that that is, in fact, the case. And even kings leave sad lives. Yeah. Voltaire. Or, uh, Voltaire. Uh, Candide has to give uh, the poorest of the kings some alms. Uh, Which is kind of a a quip at the fact that Voltaire had been uh, giving money to Frederick II, I believe? Was that? Oh mm-hmm. no! Was it? Was it another another member of the nobility that he had been uh, had been uh, supporting? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The wealthy Voltaire, also a mere commoner, was at the time ex- uh, extending financial credit to three rulers: the Duke of Württemberg, the Elector P- uh, Palatine, and the Duke de Saxe Gotha. So yeah, he wasn't not not Frederick, but. Um, I, I think Frederick had plenty of money. Probably but. right, but but Candide is um is is hinting at the fact that uh, that even the nobility can be in financial ruin and indebted to so-called commoners. After all of this. Uh, all that Candide really wants to do is to get to Constantinople, where now he knows that uh, uh, this, th- this is where Cunegonde is, is residing. And Kakambo warns him, uh, she's ugly now. Uh, also, she is washing dishes for some 
like poor prince in the suburbs of Constantinople. So, I mean, don't uh, don't expect too much, Candide. And Candide goes like, "What the hell, Combo? I gave you millions in diamonds. What happened?" And Combo's like, "Back off, dude! I had to like free you from this, you know, Spanish guy with th- seventeen names, and 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 then uh, we got captured by a pirate and got traipsed all over Europe, and finally ended up in in uh, in Turkey." So, yeah. yeah. Piracy in the 18th century and before is a really a great plot device. If you ever need, like, misfortune to befall uh, your characters, you can just have pirates run into them at any time. It's really a great, great plot device for uh, 18th century literature. You know what else is a great, great plot device? Uh, killing off characters and then having them miraculously show up later in the story. Oh, yeah. yeah. What do you think? Because <laughs> all these improbable deaths and wreck is resurrections. So who should be manning the oars poorly? It is it is noted uh, of the <laughs> boat, but the Baron, whom Candide has previously run through with a sword, and uh, Doctor Pangloss, who we thought was hanged in Lisbon, and they're both alive. Uh, sometimes these things do not end up being fatal. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, being run th- being run through with a sword is not always fatal. <laughs> being hanged and then um, and then cut open uh, in the shape of a cross like didn't kill him either. I thought that was a really funny section. So Pangloss says like, well, uh, they hanged. Now this is interesting because this is not mentioned in the initial description of the Ato de Fe. There was the storm, but right. but yeah, Pangloss says like, well, it was raining, and so they couldn't burn me because it was raining too hard. If you'll and, remember, and yeah, if you'll remember, this was not noted in the first part. Uh, but uh, so they tried to hang me, except uh, you know they're so used to burning people, they don't really know how to hang people very well. And the rope was all wet, so it slipped a bunch, and so I didn't really die. And then this guy took me home and tried to uh, dissect me, and uh, it hurt so much that I screamed out real loud. And he thought I was the devil himself, and his wife thought I was possessed, and so they're gonna perform an exorcism. But I said no, I'm <laughs> like help me, and so they sewed me up, and I was good as new. Uh, and and likewise the baron uh who so so candide like apologizes he's like hey dude sorry for running you through with my sword and the baron's like it's okay i was being pretty you know i was pretty hot under the collar too so yeah, no it's, hard it's all feelings good. but then when yeah. candide's like oh cool so i'm here to like uh bust kunigan out of slavery and then marry her right are and we then cool the, are like... we cool and the baron's like absolutely not like She'll never be able to present herself to the German nobility now if you marry if you marry her. Uh, and then, could, like Candide calls him out. He's like, "What the hell, dude? I just like bought you out of slavery. I'm about to buy your sister out of slavery. Like, what is your problem?" Uh, so they basically just like have Candide marry Cunegonde without telling the Baron. And uh, Martin the Baron and out of town. Martin and others are like, uh, "You should just like throw him in the ocean, dude. What a jerk." Um, but I guess Candide takes some mercy on him. And uh, Candide marries Lady Cunegonde and lives happily ever after. <laughs> but do they? Or do they? <laughs> This, this this conclusion chapter. So, uh, yeah, Candide marries Cunegon even though he doesn't really want to anymore. Um, but he basically does because he said he was gonna. Yeah, he spent all that time thinking about whether he could that he never stopped to think about whether he should. But your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could that they didn't stop to think if they should. Yeah. Um, and and uh, Voltaire notes that Cunegon was unaware of how ugly she had become, no one having told her. Yeah, I thought yeah. that was funny. No one had the heart to tell her. So he, so with the last of his money from the from El Dorado, he buys this little farm out in the suburbs of uh, Constantinople, and the burbs. Uh, yeah, he <laughs> settles down out to the burbs with his wife Cunegonde and his bizarre retinue of followers at this point, which includes like Pangloss and the old woman and Martin and uh, and then. Mm. 
and then Paquette and uh, and Brother Giraffio show up, and like they're part of this whole weird family. They're still kind of philosophizing. Like, I mean, Martin, Martin. It says Martin was. Uh, as for Martin, he was firmly persuaded that people are equally miserable wherever they are. He took things as they came, um, and. Uh, Later, uh, Martin in particular came to the conclusion that man was born to endure either the convulsions of anxiety or the lethargy of boredom. Uh, Candide did not agree with this, but he did not press the point. And so, Panglos, has Panglos evolved? Panglos conceded that he had suffered horribly all his life, but having once maintained that everything was going splendidly, he would continue to do so while believing nothing of the kind. So, even even though, like, throughout his life he's experienced, uh, uh, you know death and uh <laughs> and almost um being autopsied while still living and all this uh and 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 he knows the contrary he's 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 not going to admit it um so they're on this farm and just kind of like nothing to do uh and candide's kind of wondering well what's the point of everything and they come across this turk so it's this, it's this Turk that's just kind of sitting there, just under a tree somewhere. And um, the Turk says, uh, I have but 20 acres. I cultivate them with my children. Our work keeps at bay the three great evils, boredom, vice, and necessity. And here is where Candide finally like, reaches an understanding of what his philosophy is. And it's inspired by this Turk. Um, so he basically decides he's going to embrace this. Um, you know, all, things happen. We are given our certain lots in life. And to keep the evils at bay, we're just going to work on our garden. Well, but I think importantly, what he has everyone do is he everyone in, the, in his strange household finds a productive pursuit that they are good at and the, uh, and then right. you know works at that so uh you know Giraflio becomes a great carpenter and Paquette embroiders and uh, Cunegonde becomes a pastry chef right <laughs> Cunegonde was still very ugly but she became an excellent pastry chef um so everyone made himself useful including brother Giraflio who was a first-rate carpenter and even became quite good company so you know, this is at the, you know, the last line of the book is, is Candide saying we must cultivate our gardens. And I think this is what Voltaire means, not just that we need to, like, work hard and, and stop being miserable to one another. But I think, like, find something you're good at and do that is something that, like, Voltaire is, is uh, calling for at the end of this novel. Yeah, yeah. Use Use your energy to focus on that thing and use it to cultivate your your circumstances and i think much of the rest of the novel kind of serves to point out how society prevents people from doing this through various means along the way so you know war and competition for um prestige and resources and for you know being the most learned person all of that seems to be a distraction towards this end goal of just doing being your best self and putting forward your best work um through you know passion and dedication yeah and you know so the second act of this of candide is sort of candide making his fortune in the new world um and voltaire which was you know which is a trope in literature at the time it's also something that many people actually did um and Voltaire's, you know, points out that that's not a key to, you know, happiness or success. It doesn't actually turn out to do Candide any good. Um, you know, he loses all the riches that he had gained in the New World. Yeah. Voltaire is basically arguing against get-rich-quick schemes. <laughs> <laughs> and also, I guess, politics. Like, he does, he does note one of the things that they, he notes in this concluding section is that, you know, being on one of the roads into Constantinople, they see politicians and political figures and, uh, you know, all sorts of people going into Constantinople. And then, you know, a a after a time, they see these people coming out of Constantinople sort of defeated. 
Um, and so they note that, you know, people who get involved with politics often come to bad ends. Uh, which, I, I mean, okay. Voltaire, I guess, was involved in politics, but he also got run out of Constantinople, so to speak. Chapter 22 was really long. It was like, um, it's the longest chapter in the whole book. Um, and it's the, the whole Paris section. There was a part where he's talking about uh, falling ill that I thought was really amusing. Um, where Candide, like, uh, he's, you know, he has some kind of minor ailment. And um, because he ha- is rich and has the attention of all these doctors, um, he, like, instead of getting better, he gets worse because of the, like, the medical practices of the time of, you know, like, enemas and bloodletting. Um, and uh, and finally he has, like, you know, a parish curate telling him, like, okay, like, give me your, you know, give me your last, um, your last rites and such and, and everyone's going on about like this is just the way things are done and Candide is finally like this is another moment where it's dawning on him that he would rather like live than be fashionable according to the you know to the um to the practices of the of the time or of the like respected elite yeah so they the uh curate comes and and asks for a note of confession the philanthropic ladies assured him that it was all the fashion Candide replied that he was not fashionable. So, yeah, I like that part, too. Um, so, uh, we sort of all went over quotes of the week, but are there other yeah. quotes we want to briefly touch on? I feel like there are a lot. Yeah, I'm yeah. Tr- I'm looking. We've got a bunch of good ones in here already. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, Voltaire is full of quotes and quips and jips and japes. Um, other things that we want to talk about and get excited about? Uh, so I actually, yeah, I have one. So yesterday, and I'm uh, late late to the party as always with things like this but i finally saw uh kong skull island yesterday okay i've i've actually heard that kong skull island is very good for what it is it is very good for what it is if you were like me and love a good monster movie um (laughs) then you should go see it because i mean there are certain parts of it that are just ridiculous um and you love them for that but it's also pretty it's also pretty it's 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 decent. It's good. Um, Would you say? There, co- oh, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, just there. There are some really like effective use of recurring shots and things. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a couple of issues that I had with it. Like I feel like Kong is comically large in this movie, um, which is a little bit more like the original, I guess. But it's 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 it was just a little too much. Um, but no, how, it was good. How does it compare to Peter Jackson's King Kong starring Jack Black? You know, a, a lot of people criticize Peter Cox. Uh, Peter, well, Peter well, Kong's well, Jackson starring Peter, yeah. King, King Black. Yeah, that one. <laughs> Peter Jackson's King Kong starring Jack Black. And yeah, I, I mean, that movie had some issues, but I thought it was I thought it was good. I thought it was a good King Kong movie. I enjoyed it. Um, and I mean, I think. You can't really compare the two because they're like I don't know they're they're set the 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 story is different. Um, I I don't know that I could really compare them, but oh, you know, so this I, is not like a remake of King Kong because like no. Peter Jackson's King Kong is is essentially just like a remake of the original King Kong. Yeah, no, this is not a remake of the original King Kong. This is okay. set like right after the Vietnam War. So it's oh, like a King Kong story. It's it's elsewhere yeah. in the King Kongiverse. Yeah, yeah, um, but it, it also it's Earth like, Zero in uh, in the in the King Kong expanded universe. <laughs> Precisely, um, but yes, yeah, so, I mean, if 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 you enjoy mon- monster movies, if you enjoy King Kong movies, if you enjoy like pretty movies and also uh, movies with a good amount of uh, fun gore and blood, uh, go see it. And um, also, if you enjoy Tom Hiddleston and things as I do, go see it. Uh, but it and, and and stay for the end. 
Oh, you mean we shouldn't walk out two thirds of the way through? No, you should stay all the way to the end of the credits. That's a. That's oh. A, oh, oh, I see. Gotcha. So, <laughs> at, I mean, at the end of the credits, right? Samuel L. Jackson shows up and tries to recruit Kong for the Avengers, right? You become part of a bigger universe. You just don't know it yet. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> I'm also going to talk about monster movies because uh, the other day the new rebooted season of uh, Mystery Science Theater 3000 dropped on Netflix, and I've been watching that. It is great. Um, it has uh, Jonah, uh, Jonah Ray as the, uh, as the Joel character. Um, it's got Baron Vaughn and Hampton Yout as uh, the voice of the robots. They're very good. They've uh, really sort of lovingly redone Mystery Science Theater. They've kept the format exactly the same. The special effects are still bad on purpose. Um, it's just a really fun way to spend some time. I was watching it while ironing shirts yesterday. Uh, and it starts out starts out honestly a little slow. The first episode in the season is a Danish monster movie called Reptilicus. Um, but the second uh, movie in this season is called Cry Wilderness. And that episode is great. There's a part in that episode where they, the characters in the movie find a radio. And the robots joke, what's a radio? It's like a podcast that you can't control. Um, so if you've ever wished that the Mystery Science Theater jokes were not like 20 years out of date, now is your chance. Cool. Um, I think this week I'm going to recommend um, another podcast, which um, it's not like a it's not like a broy fun chatty podcast like Sky likes to listen to. <laughs> but okay, the last podcast I recommended on here was Futility Closet, which is a a serious history podcast. Thank you very much. That's true. This is a, a serious podcast, but it's um it's really good. It's called um The Good Fight. Uh, and it's hosted by Yasha Munk, and it's um, he's a political scientist, and he has a lot of other political science type people on, um, kind of talking about politics in uh, the new kind of populist era, and it's uh, it's really interesting, and they like um, they kind of talk about the political climate detached from like specific events, but just kind of in a like a broader view. And I've been really enjoying listening to um, to it since the election, basically. So check it out. Uh, the Good Fight with Yash Munk. All right, folks. All I know is that we must cultivate our garden. I'm Katie. I'm Sky. And I'm Lauren. Thanks for listening. Inter, inter, inter library loan. Please rate us high, high, high on iTunes. Find us online at illbook.club. On Twitter, we are at illbookcast. Thank you to our generous, smart, beautiful, awesome Patreon donors. We couldn't do it without you. Okay, okay, okay. Back to robot sleep until next week.